Sip, savor, and experience 408 sakes and 16 restaurants at the Joy of Sake on September 16th. Go to joyofsake.com for an evening of sake perfection. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program to my cool guests. And my guest today is Henry Saito, who is the founder and the CEO of Joto Sake, a leading sake import and distribution company which he founded 11 years ago. Today we'll talk about how Henry built his successful sake business, artisanal sake breweries that he works with, and his own sake label, and much more. Hello, Henry. Welcome to Japanese. Thank you. Thanks, Akiko. So, um, so first of all, um, how did you become interested in Japan? Because I, I heard you, you minored in Japanese at uh, college in Minnesota. Yes, yeah. Uh, I got interested in Japan through Japanese movies, actually. Um, I grew up in New York, and when I was in high school, there were lots of secondhand movie theaters, and you mm-hmm. could go and watch a double feature for $5. And, <laughs> uh, so I started, uh, I used to see all sorts of movies, and Kurosawa mm-hmm. immediately captured me, uh, and then Ozu, right. and uh, when I went to college, I decided to start studying Japanese. Mm, right, so, so the Kurosawa of the old time and the Ozu is kind of like a warm Yes, yeah. Right, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, people in film sort of debate which of those two directors captures the Japanese soul. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting question. On the one hand, Ozu captures, you know, the intimacy mm. and Japanese modern life, right. um, family portraits, personal portraits. Mm-hmm. But then Kurosawa, uh, you know, the sort of majesty, nobility, <laughs> the fight, the samurai way. Mm. Um, so very interesting. I think both of them are equal, obviously, equally Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of how they express Japanese culture, I think both are just amazing. Mm, right. You know? And uh, and whatever they made, they made is still classic. It still applies definitely. to this whole uh, life now. Definitely. Yeah. Right. I mean, I saw a Tokyo story maybe a year ago, and it just brought me to tears yet again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, And I heard that uh, you enrolled in the homestay program in Japan and where you are at college. Yep. So how did it happen, and uh, how did you find experience? Yeah, so I started studying Japanese in the fall of my freshman year, and uh, then uh, most colleges will have a year-long 
exchange program. Um, but I really wanted to get Japan much faster than waiting for junior year. Mm. Um, and so I found uh, an intensive language and homestay program at ICU, mm. uh, International Christian University in Tokyo, in Mitaka. Right. And so I went there for the summer between my freshman and sophomore years. Wow. Yeah. So after a year of Japanese, uh, I headed off to Japan. <laughs> um, I tr- got my Japan Rail Pass, like I still do now, mm. um, and spent about a month uh, traveling around, wow. um, staying at Ryokan, uh, and then uh, got to Tokyo for my homestay program. Mm. So I, I lived with a Japanese family for about uh, two and a half months. Oh, wow. And actually just saw them about five months ago. Really? Oh, still yeah. in touch? Still in touch. Uh, fortunately, they're both still alive. They're just amazing. Mm. Uh, really took me in and, you know, became like a second family. Wow. It sounds yeah. like you really started the Japanese experience from the, with the very best. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's getting spoiled. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. and then the homestay, I'm sure that they're really ready to accept somebody who's not you know, who's from the States, and are they, what did you find in them? Yeah, I got really lucky. They had a very unique story. The father worked for Sumitomo and had been transferred to New York in maybe the 60s, Mm. and they uh, gave birth to their second son uh, while they were here in Queens, Mm. Um, and then they moved back to Japan, and they had some... um, connection with an American family who they felt incredibly indebted to. Um, I've, you know, it's a personal story, but they um, always wanted to kind of repay Mm. that uh, kindness that they had been given here. Um, And they also wanted to expose their son to, you know, American, you know, because he he was actually born here, Mm. uh, the younger son. So, uh, yeah, they were eager to have a homestay student and we got along great and yeah it was really wonderful mm, sounds like they became uh, their son like, uh, right? yeah family. without being too presumptuous you know <laughs> definitely became part of the extended family mm, yeah right and then but uh, when you came back uh to to the U.S. and then eventually you didn't work with Japanese company or anything. Yeah. But, uh, you said you worked for you know interesting companies. <laughs> and worked on very interesting projects. So maybe you can tell us about yeah. that experience. Yeah. So when I came back to uh, college, I just kept studying Japanese. I majored in philosophy. But then when I graduated college, uh, I went to work in the restaurant business. Mm. I had been living in New York. Uh, I split my vacations between working at Kinokuniya Bookstore mm-hmm. during the summers <laughs> right. and then uh, working for a catering company during the winters because that was when you're, they were busiest. Mm. Um, so when I graduated college, uh, at that time, the JET program, which is the Japanese English uh, program for Mar- you know, American teachers, mm. didn't accept people who spoke Japanese. Oh. They only wanted Americans who only spoke English. <laughs> so I couldn't do that. So I uh, ended up going into the food business, first working as a cook. And then in 1993, um, through a family friend, I was introduced to the owner of Chow Bella Gelato, mm. uh, which at that time was on Mott Street. Uh, very small, uh, primarily wholesale 
uh, producer of really fantastic gelato mm. and sorbet mm. um, in Little Italy. So I started at Chabella in 93. I was uh, doing everything. It was, I was, there were four of us. Uh, you know, wow, I was only four. Yeah, for the government. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, fifteen hundred square foot mm-hmm. facility, two five gallon uh, ice cream machines. Uh, we were chopping fruit, prepping, <laughs> doing deliveries, filing invoices. You know, it was the company was tiny at that time, right. and uh, it was you know in uh, on Mott Street when it was still Little Italy and not Nolita. Um, and the company just grew. So eventually, after uh, doing kind of office work, I started answering the phone and taking orders from the chefs that would call us because mm. we didn't actually make many pints. It was mainly to restaurants. Okay. And so the chefs would call on their orders, and I would say, well, have you tried this other sorbet? You're only ordering this. Why don't you try this or that? Or this would go with your cuisine? Or mm. we just this is new fruit that's in season. Why don't you try this sorbet? And the owners were like, wow, listen to you, you should go do sales. So I started doing sales, uh, and the company grew, a new owner came in, and we grew sales dramatically. Um, And then they sent me to California Mm -hmm. to open the West Coast branch of Chabella. Well, I just number, you have uh, (laughs) $300,000 to $1.5 million Mm -hmm. when you're there in two years. (laughs) Yeah, which, you know, is not all me. Uh, one of the other owners was a very strong business person and salesperson, but it was really the two of us doing sales. And, you know, it showed me at least how if you have a great product and mm-hmm. you're passionate about it and you're making it well, um, that a business can grow. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just really exciting to be a part of. Right. And then you moved to uh, Brooklyn Brewery and uh, yep. ended up being a sales manager. It was in 1998? Uh, yes. So I joined Brooklyn in 98. Um, at that time, the company was both a beer distributor and the Brooklyn brand. Uh, there was a division called the Craft Brewers Guild, mm-hmm. and I was the sales manager for the west side of Manhattan, mm-hmm. uh, selling just an amazing portfolio of craft beer from all over the world, Belgian, German, British beers, um, and did that and then uh, was asked to join the brewery division uh, as operations manager and then general manager of the brewery division. Mm. Um, So I had the honor of working uh, for Steve Hindy, who is one one of the two founders, and Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster. Mm. Um, And it was great. It was uh, Brooklyn is an incredible company and a great brand. And I love the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And, And The beer business is amazing. Mm. I mean, there's just something really wonderful about beer and about beer companies. Mm -hmm. You know, it it spans all uh, spectrums of people and uh, ranges within a company. It's Mm. it's great. And it's like, I I got a chance to speak to Garrett uh, Uh a couple of times. And his mind is still like entrepreneurial, like really young brewery. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's like the world... It's really, um, the production is really one of the biggest in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Brooklyn is definitely now one of the biggest craft beer makers, and he has not stopped innovating and pushing, and he's he's a really dynamic, great guy. We have dinner every once in a while. He loves Japanese food. Um, Yeah, he's got 
so much energy and mm. passion and integrity. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's uh, something in common with a small Japanese brewery, sake breweries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the sake breweries obviously have more family history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brooklyn is a first-generation company, and American, you know, younger, uh, sort of developing. Um, but you have the same small, I mean, now it's much bigger, but you have the same heart of mm-hmm. being a small producer. Right. And wanting to make a truly excellent product and to make a product that's as good when you're tiny as Mm -hmm. when you're big. So that's, I think, what all uh, producers are aiming for, even as they get big. Mm, Right. Okay. And then, uh, well, in 2002, you you were recruited by uh, Monohensi Vuitton. And that's another interesting thing. So what happened? Yeah, when I was at Brooklyn, I did the executive MBA program at NYU. And I started looking around for other opportunities. I had worked for, you know, these smaller, scrappy startups. Mm. And I felt like, okay, I've got my MBA, I, you know, and I want to try a bigger company and see what it's like. That's really big. <laughs> yeah, it's very big. Um, I did actually, interestingly enough, uh, try to use my MBA to, to then work for a Japanese company mm. because I still wanted to connect with Japan and use my Japanese. But at that point, my Japanese, as, as is now, was not you know, native level, mm. business level, you know, and that's what you need mm. um, when you're looking for a job. Right. Uh, so I ended up uh, getting uh, hired by uh, Moet Hennessy. They had just bought Belvedere Vodka, mm. um, and they hired me to be the director of international marketing to launch Belvedere Mm. Uh, around the world through the Moat Hennessy network. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you love growing business or brand from small to big, and actually that's what you're doing right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm not sure what I would do at a bigger company where I'm supposed to steer the ship, but I certainly am happy to get it from uh, A to mm. G or H. Right. So it sounds like you had the right path to be your own business owner, right? And then, um, so, but now your life is devoted to Japanese sake. So how did you get into sake in the first place? Yeah. So when I was working at Brooklyn Brewery, my wife, who we were just dating at the time, you know, said, well, wow, if you're into Japan and you love alcohol, obviously, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we should go to this sake bar, uh, this sake restaurant in Midtown, and so she took me to Sakagura. Mm. Um, and well, Sakagura is, uh, I think, it's, it's one, one of the most iconic, legendary sake bars in absolutely. New York, right? Absolutely, and they're just celebrating their, I think, 30th anniversary oh, wow. this year. Well, that opened in 1996, basically. That's uh, old yeah, age. so maybe, so yeah. Oh, actually, 86? 96? Well, 20th, yeah, 86. Yeah, right. I forget which right. which oh, uh, anniversary, but they're right. coming up on a big one. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sakagura is incredible. I mean, even by Japanese standards, Sakagura mm. is amazing. Right. Um, you know, they have and had, which is what blew me away and opened my eyes, just, you know, a menu which is incredibly well organized, mm. really informative, um, explains different types and how right. the sake's taste and they 
have specials and new sakes and um anyway i i had never mm. really had sake um I, you know wow. when i was an exchange student i was uh diligently practicing kanji and uh, <laughs> watching Japanese baseball, maybe drinking a little beer, uh, you know, and, and it just wasn't part of my world. But mm. um, then I was exposed to it and I was like, my God, this is like beer or wine. This is, you know, there's so much diversity and mm. complexity and uh, different places and types of rice and styles of product and uh, I just started going there. Mm. Um, and actually, the uh, manager, Kadoisan, mm. uh, who's now at Bohemia, you know, uh, became a good friend. And then I started buying sake at retail, uh, Aster, Wine and Spirits, which at that time was on Aster, mm. uh, was really like had the best selection. Mm. And I started buying books. I started uh, buying magazines, mm. going to events. Wow. Every tasting event I could go to, um, and uh, just really dove into it. Danchu, that was my uh, go-to magazine. Mm-hmm. I would go to Kinokuni and buy Danchu. Right. Danchu is like uh, you know gourmet <laughs> magazine. Yeah, Don- right? yeah, exactly. And it's like, like it's the, an abbreviation of uh, the men's kitchen. <laughs> is that yeah, right? Yeah, right, right, because right. Dan, <laughs> So yeah. like. Uh, People men's cooking at home and then drink sake, that kind of. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're pretty much the best magazine. I mean, there are others, but coming out of Japan and reviewing sake. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I started getting really into it, and then I started thinking about starting a sake import company. Mm. Wow. So it's kind of like uh, the plug get open about sake, like your whole passion just uh, exploded in a way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, in 2005, you founded uh, Joto Sake, an importer and distributor of Japanese sake. So why? Because you could have stayed just, uh, you know, the hobbyist of sake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had had these experiences of being in companies that grew, I, I had been a part of it and felt that I had learned the basic skills uh, to do that. And then uh, also there was just various timing. Uh, the owner of Belvedere had a uh, payout for the employees as Moed Hennessy bought more of the company. So financially, it, it and, you know, I was in a position I could do that. Mm. Um, but I also, yeah, so those were two key points but then also I felt like there was something else that could be done in mm. sake than what was being done which right. of course everyone thinks they can do something better than <laughs> other people right? right but I think 2005 was a good timing right? yeah yeah Cause, definitely uh, yeah this, I think the market was growing steadily I think since the late 90s you know along with the popularity of Japanese food and restaurants so everybody's just waiting oh sake but yeah. then not much uh, was done like in terms of education and sales yeah right? yeah it was definitely a very ripe time I think people were really getting interested in sake but they it wasn't fully developed um, you know there were other sake bars mm. I mean obviously the people in sake were on decibel mm. uh, but there was just more and more interest there were more articles uh, being written about sake mm. uh, some non-Japanese restaurants using sake in their wine programs right. so it, it was definitely a good time to mm. do it right even uh, I think uh, Western restaurants started to carry sake mm-hmm. slowly that time yeah right? yeah so and the the 
the name Jodo means、uh, highest quality. Yeah. And so, the, what's the vision or philosophy of Jodo Sake? Right. Well, I wanted,、uh, in terms of the name, something people could say,、um, and obviously something with meaning. But what I really wanted to do with the company,、um, I felt that when I looked around in the wine world, if、mm-hmm. I bought a bottle of wine, And I turned, turned around and looked at the label.、Mm. If I saw it was imported by a certain wine importer,、uh, Cobrand, Michael Skernick, Frederick Wildman, Kermit Lynch,、uh, that you know, it would be of a high quality.、Mm. That I, I felt that I had that trust as a consumer,、uh, even if I didn't know anything about what the wine label meant.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt that with sake, there were amazing sakes coming in、mm-hmm. and obviously amazing companies.、Um, but that when it came to the selection of the sakes, that it wasn't entirely consistent.、Mm-hmm. And also, when I dig deeper and tried to find information about the sake and、uh, the, the packaging, that it just wasn't. Uh, well done. It wasn't easy for me to、mm. find and figure out. And here I was, someone who had studied Japanese.、Right. <laughs> so it was,、uh, mm. I felt, wow, well, if, if I'm having this hard a time, then the average consumer is definitely not.、Mm. So I wanted to have a selection of sakes that was consistently good, that was of the highest quality,、mm. that were really excellent, and that were all different. So that, you know, there wasn't. We weren't duplicating, which we don't, by region. So,、mm. we all, all of our brewers are from different regions.、Right. And then they're also very different stylistically.、Mm. So, we might have some that are really rich and earthy and、mm. funky,、uh, and then some that are really delicate and pretty and fruity、mm. and, and delightful. Um, you know, and really try to have、uh, a difference. You know, in, in Japanese, you say sorizore, like、mm-hmm. sorizore no tokucho ga arimas. Like that, they each have their specialty、mm-hmm. and their regionality and their personality. And then, obviously, the people, you know, was another major factor and just who they were as I met them over the、mm-hmm. years. And, right.、Yeah. Well, they have a big strength because you can really communicate deeply with those people in Japanese. Yeah, I mean, my Japanese has completely gone downhill, but、um, I have the appreciation and understanding and desire,、uh, and I, I can converse、uh, a lot.、Um, but yes, I, they really saw that I had a sincere passion,、mm. and, and that had a big impact. Right. Yeah. Okay. And,、uh, well, I have to say that、uh, we will talk about the breweries later, but,、yeah. um, you know, like there's a sake tasting event and it's by Joto Sake. Oh, I have to go. Because I know <laughs> there's always good sake there.、Oh, so. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So,、um, yeah, but、uh, so now you know the market. So, who's、yeah. buying Japanese sake in the US now? I mean, it's, you know, Definitely main,、uh, mainly Americans. I mean, obviously, there are Japanese expats buying sake at, at Japanese food stores, and that's a you know, very good business. And、mm-hmm. um, those stores are unbelievable.、Um, but,、uh, you know, really, it's now younger consumers.、Um, I think sake has gone through a transformation, and people have talked about this on your show, but, you know, 20 years ago or, or more, but really 20 years ago, but still for some people,、uh, sake is, is thought of as very generic.、Mm. They have no concept that there are different types.、Uh, they've had it hot in a carafe in, in little、uh, cups. 
and that's all they really know. And, mm. and that's how sake was 20 years ago. Right. And now with, you know, people before me and people come on since, since me and, and us and restaurants and consumers and stores and mm. sake experts and so forth, uh, it, the whole market has moved to show people what an enormous range mm. there is of, of sake. Right. And I think that that has drawn in, you know, a lot of young consumers. And now people who are, I mean, people who are, uh, you know, 30, what is it, 32 years old, mm. you know, started drinking when they were 21, which is when I started my company. So, mm. you know, people in their 30s and 40s, they've grown up with sake knowing something totally different mm. than people who are 50 and 60 right. <laughs> or 60 and 70, you know? So it, it just, what people think of mm. sake uh, is totally different now. Right. And, you know, and they may not yeah. know anything. But I think that's, you know, the millennial generation, they, yeah. they, they saw, they found that they're born, their parents are eating sushi and the yeah. supermarkets and everywhere. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's this, not the foreign thing. It's a part of their American Food life, yeah, in a way, yeah, right. yeah, and it it kind of happens with everything. I mean, no one, I don't know. I guess people still buy Hershey chocolate bars, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it, most people don't even look at that anymore. Right. So, well, um, so you need gender, age group, any lifestyle, the diversity is the key. I mean, I think that obviously the more cutting edge uh, communities uh, Brooklyn, Northwest mm. uh, you know hipper parts of California it's you know definitely edgier those are the called the thought leaders mm. um, but I you know I, I see sake I go all over the country selling sake and I mean it's even improving in you know Tampa, Florida or mm. you know San Antonio, Texas or places that are uh, you know, call it more mainstream and not as supposedly sophisticated, mm. um, you know, are now, you know, having much better selections. Right. It's just not treated as like house sake anymore. Mm. <laughs> right. It sounds like, uh, you know, the main, many restaurants, some liates started to kind of initiating yeah. putting sake on their wine list. Yeah. And that's still so important. I mean, the uh, increased sophistication and people who really are experts, that is so important for that part of the uh, community to be strong. And mm. there's a, a wine certification program mm. called WSET that now mm. has a level three uh, sake education mm. uh, component. Mm. Um, so it, it's really getting taken seriously um, and cultivating those people who are, are experts. Mm. But I think at the same time, the average consumer is more inclined to drink sake, knows a bit more, and the market is, I hope, getting friendlier mm. to that person too. Right. And then uh, there is annual uh, the alcohol beverage competition in London that's yes. called... Uh, the, yes, uh, IWC. Right, so yes. that's the sake category, which is very strong now. Yes, that's a major component of that competition. Um, there's another uh, wine and spirits competition in London. Actually, the Houston Rodeo and Livestock <laughs> Wine uh, <laughs> Festival has sake as a part of it. And really? you, that sounds like a very... 
uh, funny, you know, wine festival, but it, it actually in Texas is a big deal. So, awesome. uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's mm, great. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, actually, yeah. I, I tasted a Texas wine. I mean, some of them are really good too. So that's like open mindedness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. What yeah. a great surprise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's take a quick break here. And sure. when we come back, uh, we'll talk about um, Hermit's own super tasty sake. So please stay with us. The Joy of Sake invites you to the largest and liveliest sake tasting event in New York. With over 400 premium sakes to taste, including gold and silver award winners from the U.S. National Sake Appraisal and 16 of New York's top restaurants providing sake-licious appetizers. The event takes place on Friday, September 16th from 6.30 to 9.30 at the Metropolitan Pavilion on 18th Street. You'll be able to sip, savor, and experience a record 408 premium sakes, all in peak condition, with over half of them unavailable in the U.S. and exclusively for the joy of sake. All categories of sake will be represented, with over half from the elite Daiginjo sakes. Plus, nibble on sake-inspired appetizers, all carefully curated and perfectly paired with two creative poke stations by Narita and Sakamai, plus elegantly crafted appetizers from Sushi Nakazawa, Sakagura, Zuma, and more. Celebrate the world's finest sakes in an evening of sake perfection at the Joy of Sake. For more information, go to joyofsake.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Henry Seidel, who is the founder and CEO of Joto Sake, a leading sake important distribution company, which he founded 11 years ago. So um, how do you select uh, sake to import? Uh, what are your criteria? Uh, well, a few things. One, it has to be delicious and really high quality. Mm -hmm. uh, so we uh, do a lot of research on breweries and, and really uh, try to find the best. Um, you know, now that we have a, a decent-sized portfolio, it's really about choosing the next sakes. Mm. So we're looking for new regions. We're looking for styles we don't have, flavor profiles. Mm. Um, not so much price points because, you know, there's a, a range that we get from all of our producers. Mm. But we're looking for now new regions that we don't represent. Okay. But almost always uh, family-owned and operated. Our oldest brewery uh, is 15th generation, founded in the 1540s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the youngest is third generation. Mm. Um, you know, Which one is the oldest one? We have uh, eight uh, breweries we're uh, working with. Eight, okay. eight breweries that we okay. import from uh, Shichi Honyari. Okay. Uh, the Seven Spearsmen, which is made at the Tomita Brewery, mm. uh, is our oldest. And it's Tomita, in uh, Shiga Prefecture in, in Shiga. Kyoto, right? Yep. Right. And then uh, we have uh, about three breweries that are sixth or seventh generation, mm. uh, another that's 13th generation, uh, <laughs> founded in 1778. Wow. I think uh, when I last did the math, between the eight companies, there were 64 generations and 1,520 years of family <laughs> sake-making history. Yes, uh, you can't even think of how far is yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. So, um, well, the, you know, like, 
there's so many different, like your diversity, like you said, yeah. right? So how do you describe the difference between, you know, this brewery, that region? What determines uh, the differences? Yeah, well, <clears throat> the differences in, in regions really relate a lot to the climate, um, the uh, type of cuisine. Mm. Um, I understand. And, and a little bit the style of sake of that region. Um, you know, sake is, is brewed, so there's a lot of human element to it. Um, so it's not entirely, it's not really driven by terroir, uh, mm. purely agriculture the way uh, wine is. There's many ingredients, and it's really about how, how they make them. But uh, the colder regions uh, generally produce uh, fruitier and lighter style sake because uh, the yeast that produces more aromatic mm. uh, style sake and ginjo and daiginjo uh, is, is easiest to make under cold fermentation methods, and those regions uh, tend to produce those mm. styles. At the same time, those regions produce some very earthy and rustic mm. uh, style sake because they're cold, Aye. and so they drink uh, warm sake during the winter. Mm. Uh, the more southern regions uh, into, like, the Kobe area produce a kind of drier, grainier, uh, more, I'd say, masculine, traditional-style sake, and those mm. are, you know, the, the Nada... Uh, district of Kobe is where a lot of the original sake breweries popped up. Right. So they're they're kind of sticking to tradition a little bit. Um, but then, you know, when you go farther uh, south, you get, again, like a bit more grainy, mm. uh, ricier, uh, more umami-style sake. Mm. And, of course, there are trends in sake towards... Uh, let's say drier, earthier, richer, or fruitier, more aromatic, and, and that kind of mm. changes. And I see that in the U.S. that people's uh, tastes also change. Mm. Um, but generally, you know, we are looking for breweries that have a sense of who they are mm. and what they want to make. Uh, generally, have a house style, mm. but that can still have a, a really big range. And that, right. that's amazing to see is when you can still identify, that's what we look for, is you, uh, you can still identify a sake as being that brand, let's mm. say Shichi Honyari, um, but is, is very different across, you know, a range of the sakes they make. Right, interesting. And, and we had Eric Shrai who directed the film uh, mm. The Birth of Sake yeah. in episode 47 <coughs> and, uh, and discussed how traditional sake brewers are struggling to survive. So, um, yeah. How do you see that your, your breweries are struggling and try to see, you know, like catching the trend? Uh, our breweries are, are doing great. I mean, the uh, Jizake movement, the handcrafted sake uh, business is very good mm. uh, in Japan. There's right. So Jizake, G means local. Yeah. So it's more like uh, deeper, artisanal. Yes, yes the artisanal trend. craft sakes are doing great. Now that doesn't mean they're all doing great. There are obviously some that are that are not, mm. and you know I think one of their biggest challenges now is is finding people, mm. uh, because there's been a population flux towards the big cities, and right. most of these breweries are in the country. Right. Just like describing the birth of sake, it's it's not an easy work. It's, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's hard work, cold winters, hands. Going into a lot of cold water all the time. Mm. Uh, it's you know bending over, picking things up. It's <laughs> it's not easy work. Mm. Um, 
but the the products themselves, the, the sake breweries, you know that that uh, type of sake is mm. very popular. Right. Very popular. So, so the future is good. I think so. I think the future of sake is great. Uh, there's also been some changes in the laws, uh, the mm. taxation on uh, imported rice in Japan. So. Uh, lower tariffs. So now a lot of the farmers that were growing uh, cooking rice mm. are starting to grow sake rice oh, because they okay. get more money for it. Mm. So the supply of rice, of sake rice, is increasing, which is great because, you know, one of our biggest challenges as an importer has been to, you know, meet the demand mm. um, and not go out of stock. And, and I think looking forward uh, that's going to be better and better right. it's going to be more availability of product oh, wow that's wonderful yeah yeah right. okay and uh, now you also have your own sake brand yeah. so why did you decide to make your own sake <laughs> well you know for seven years we did not have our own brand um, I didn't want to do that and uh, you know still the the core of our business is our imported uh traditional portfolio but what i found was i was going around the country selling sake and, and every sake sales call is a sake 101 lesson mm. um you know i'd go to portfolio tastings with wine companies with our distributors and be in a, a big uh ballroom with lots of wine importers and people would come around with their glasses and they'd put in front of the the wine company and mm. the guy would pour the glass and say well this is the 05 or this is the <laughs> cab this is the merlot this is the and you know the drinker the t buyer would taste it and know what they're doing and then they get to my table and they go okay i gotta rinse up my glass now tell me about sake and you'd have to go through this whole thing right. Jinjo, <laughs> this that and all these questions and it just, you know, became maddening. Um, and so I started feeling there's got to be an easier way to do this. I mean, sure, we have a website. We try to do seminars and classes and stuff. But there's got to be a way to get people to know the basics of sake mm. <laughs> much more easily. Um, and so th that started to really uh, vex me. And then also I would meet people and they'd say, oh, you import sake. That's amazing. I, I had this sake. It came in a brown bottle and it had a white label with Japanese characters <laughs> on it. And I'd be like, well, that could be about a thousand different sakes. <laughs> and then every once in a while someone would say, well, it, it actually came in this thin blue bottle. And mm. I'd be like, oh, I know what that is. That's Mabo or, you know, or it, it had this or they said it was made with this. So anyway... Um, I started thinking, well, what what can we do to educate people and teach them about sake much more basically mm. um, and also give them something they can remember mm. so they can, you know, know what to buy again. Uh, so I, I then re really started thinking about doing our own brand, uh, making our own brand. Lots of people wanted me to do the, you know stupid idea of you know samurai sake or <laughs> you know ninja this or that and i was like god give me a break um but so what i wanted to do is to create a sake lesson on the bottle mm. and teach people about sake um, and also give them the really basic information they need about that product like right. people want to know what does it taste like you know what do i pair it with how do i serve it mm. those, those basic things so I looked around uh, for a great 
packaging designer and ultimately found one in Adelaide, Australia. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of a nice it, twist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a company called Parallax that had done all of this wonderful wine uh, packaging uh, and a lot of wine labels that involve typography and imagery and very visual. Mm. And I was like, these guys are doing exactly what I want to do. And I decided to use our name, Joto, on for our brand, mm. as opposed to Ninja or something silly like that, um, and just to have it be our selection mm. of classic types. So mm. there's Junmai, Junmai Ginjo, Dai Ginjo, Nigori, um, and for each sake label to be to teach people something uh. about sake. Hmm. So the Junmai has a, a circle. Uh, and it ex- explains uh, shinpaku, which ah. is the uh, starch in the center of the grain. And then nigori has a filter, kind of an abstract image of a filter. Mm. Uh, the ginjo has little bubbles of pink and red that are the two kinds of yeast that are ah. blended to make that uh, sake. Right. So they're all um, kind of educational. I wanted them to be kind of sake geeky, Mm. Um, and they are, (laughs) but they're also very plain spoken uh, explanations. Right, so that's what you need, and you don't have no. to do that one one everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hopefully, hopefully it'll right. cut down on that part. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it's a, I know that uh, you work with your breweries that you work with yeah. for your import and yeah. distribution. Yeah. So the, all the Jota brand is made by our producers. So it's wonderful, excellent jizake. Mm. Um, we didn't go farm it off to a big uh, mass producer. Uh, so it's really their sake. We say who makes it uh, on on the label. Mm. Um, you know, and it's not super cheap. It's uh, very well-priced, but it's not like, you know, aiming to be a super affordable sake. Mm. It's still a high-quality jizake, right. but just uh, more understandable. Mm. Yeah. Well, the... the you know, the fact that you work with the breweries for second making, you are making the, you know, relationships even more stronger. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely, it's selling more sake for them. Um, and hopefully it's kind of taking care of that, <clears throat> like, 101 mm. <laughs> that we're always trying to do as just a foundation of, of sake. Because when that was another thing is, you know, I want to talk about uh, Eiko Fuji, Wataribune, and mm. the story of Wataribune rice, or Seikyo, and talk about the water in Hiroshima. And, and you know, when I'm talking about their brands, mm. I want to be telling their stories mm. and, and what's interesting about their sake and, and how it tastes. I don't want to be giving someone a, what is Cabernet or what is Merlot? <laughs> like, you should know that by now. Right. Uh, or you go go ask somebody else that. Um, you know, so it, it enables us to kind of mm. do the different things that we want to do, right. you know, which we, we have to do. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think uh, raising the bar to the next level for everybody. Yeah. Because right? I yeah. think the market is totally ready. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, mentioned Astor wine, wine, Wines and Spirits, they have over 200 different kinds of sake, for instance. Yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't <laughs> think of that 20 years ago, and it's happening. Yeah. 
Yeah, right? and there are uh, people trying different things in terms of branding with sake, and, and I think that's actually very exciting. Mm. Um, you know, some people might look down their noses on it. They're purists and they're sake snobs, and they're like, oh, that's, you know, this or that. But actually, I mean, if you look at the wine industry, mm. um, wine years ago became much more accessible. Mm. Uh, Robert Mondavi was really the one who, you know, was the trailblazer to make California wine both very high quality, mm. but also accessible. Right. Uh, whereas, let's say, French, Italian, and, and Spanish wines are still kind of often stuck in a particular mold when it comes to packaging. But actually, over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years, wines have totally broken their own mold mm. and gotten much more fun and playful and colorful right. and visual and much more experimental in terms of branding. And I think that the fact that sake is doing that, mm. that companies other than ours are, are breaking out and trying new things. And, and you see that with Japanese sake makers, too. I mean, you go to Japan and some of the labels now, you know, in stores are very mm -hmm. fun and, and creative. And I think that shows that the category has confidence that mm. it, we're ready to be fun and playful. And we don't just have to do, right. you know, the traditional thing. Like, you know, there can be more uh, freedom. Uh, mm. I think that's great. Right. And also I think a sake market uh, kind of expanded towards American. And then mm -hmm. it's more sort of uh, triggered by this cultural difference. Yeah. And the freedom. Yeah. And, you know, it's also really, I mean, you, yeah, I'm sure you experience this a lot. When you're in Japan, you meet someone who's like 13th generation, you know, <laughs> knife maker. And then they tell you that they love like Twizzlers or something, you know, like, <laughs> like you know, I mean, Japanese people can be incredibly quirky and, and fun and, and it, you know, it doesn't all have to be so serious. And I, I think there's so much fun in Japanese culture, right. too. and. They, yeah. they want to bring that, too. Exactly. It's like a Kurosawa and an anime. It's <laughs> coexisting in the same country, right? So that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So where can we find uh, your Joto Sake? Uh, if you're looking for it at retail, uh, Sakaya is a great store. In East uh, Village. In the East Village. Mm -hmm. um, Brooklyn Wine Exchange, uh, Smith & Vine. Um, there's other stores. I'm forgetting the names. And sorry to the... Those customers, um, you know, in terms of restaurants, obviously Sakagura, Decibel, mm. um, Sushi Seki, uh, you know, many restaurants in, in Brooklyn, Okonomi, mm. uh, you know, lots of. Wow. Yeah. I yeah. have to find yeah. places. Yeah. I want to try. Yeah. So, okay. So, what's your plan for the future? Uh, to keep doing what we're doing. I mean, I think uh, we we have a lot of room for growth, just hiring more people and, and doing what we do better. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm always looking for ways uh, to do that, to right. be more efficient and to grow the category. That's I'm, your mindset. What's that? Right. That's your mindset. Yeah, it is. Growing. It is. It is. Right. Okay, great. Um, thank you for joining us today, Henry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
So, um, listeners, if you'd like to know more about Henry's work, please go to jotosake.com. Uh, that is J-O-T-O-S-A-K-E, jotosake.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. Uh, we appreciate your feedback. And our engineer today is David Tatasiore. And thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.